Welcome back, everybody. My name is Eric Wright. I'm the host of your Disco Posse podcast. In case you haven't noticed, there's been a wee bit of a tiny break. One might call it a hiatus. The reason is, of course, well, started a company. That's kind of a big deal. And I got you to thank for this. All the amazing folks that listen to this podcast and all the fantastic supporters who've made this possible. Uh, well, yeah, I can't. I really can't thank you enough. You, uh, you mean a lot. Everybody means a lot. All the feedback we get, the reviews, the in-person discussions, and, and hearing that this stuff matters to you know, the guests and to our bookers and to all the people in my partner network. So thank you all. This means a lot. And this is really especially great because we get to welcome back Noemi Graysdorf. Noemi is just such a fantastic person. She is a true expert in technical product marketing, somebody who I look up to, which given the business of what my team at GTM Delta and I are doing is particularly handy. Uh, so there you go. Thank you so much. Again, this is Noemi Graysdorf. Before we jump in, of course, speaking of partners, I got to mention a huge shout out to all the fine folks who make this podcast happen, including you want to talk about Scaling up a business fast, you want to do that with the fine folks at the Shift Group. What does the Shift Group do? They take elite humans, elite athletes, they turn them into elite technical sales, just aficionados. Not just giving people the power and the skills, but setting you up for success. How to hire, how to scale your organization. JR is one of the most amazing humans who does this day in day out they are growing at an incredible pace and that's because they know how to do things right for their people their elite athletes that they bring on board and most importantly for their clients so go check it out go to shiftgroup.io whoa cool super cool so go and say hi to jr for me if you do uh, send a, a little email out to jr at shiftgroup.io definitely well worth it secondly not just because you know it's first and second but more it was the second on my list Always got to give some love for the fine folks at Veeam Software. Everything you need for your data protection needs, your ransomware needs, your back all those things up needs, that's it. You got to go to vee.am forward slash Disco Posse. They got some really cool stuff coming up. We're going to AWS reInvent. We're going to see some neat things from them there. Go check out all the cool products, the innovations, the changes, and back your stuff up. And here you go. This is Noemi Graysdorf on the Disco Posse podcast, and thank you. We'll see you all. Oh, right. Don't forget to head on over to gtmdelta.com and let me know that you like the company. You're listening to the Disco Posse Podcast. No, I mean... Thank you very much. Welcome back. It's funny. We've been talking a while. I always love when we, we sort of pre-podcast the podcast, even though I promised I wouldn't let you let us do that. We have got so much stuff that we've got going on. You've got exciting change that's been happening. You, we now realize we have this, this interesting sort of Dirk Gently's holistic detective agency level of interconnectedness of all things that we've achieved um, but if you don't mind, for the folks that are brand new to you, I will, of course, have a link to the previous episodes we chatted on because your, your talents have already been shown 
in, in our discussion there. Uh, but yeah, give a quick uh, intro to yourself and we'll talk about what's new. So, uh, Noemi Graysdorf, um, I've been in the infrastructure space, I guess, um, for, you know, over 20 years, um, mostly in channel development, channel sale, early, um, early vendor sort of um, opportunities. Um, I spent a number of years as I, at IADC as a storage analyst and um, mostly just track the industry of helping with um, technical marketing, uh, messaging, positioning, sort of the whole go-to-market type services. And um, my experience and expertise kind of crosses between um, all things storage, first and foremost, um, which is primary, secondary, archiving, cloud, backup, or, you know, all that stuff that's related to uh, storing, moving, protecting uh, data in any form, in any use case. Um, and then uh, in the last, I would say maybe, uh, how many years, maybe six or seven years, um, I've also uh, got involved in uh, with companies, early stage companies who've developed interesting technology that is um, server-based, whether it's uh, you know memory-based file system with tiering to persistent media, um, to uh, just uh, ability to um, catalog and um, data and be able to just manage storage differently to long haul over WAN data transport and access. Um, and more recently um, working with companies um, whose technology is based on the DPU, the data processing unit, which is a new processing unit um, and uh, composability with um, a side uh, interest in cybersecurity, which we have not talked about, but happy to uh, share what, what's going on there as well. Yeah, and this is the, the interesting thing is you have two very differentiated capabilities that you bring to the world, other than the fact that you're a fantastic human, that's it's, it's a oh, bonus. Uh, but the, first of all, the, the deep understanding, we went, we went a lot into the last conversation, so we'll dabble into it a bit again. Of course, this idea of finding the right the right, you know, exciting, emotive way to be able to describe technology and really like bring that product market fit and understanding where there where gaps still exist and effectively like sort of creating a web of so between these chasms. I'll say it's the guideline between the chasms, you know, between the points in the chasm where then you can build the bridge. And being early, it's a unique capability to understand where it's going, describe the destination while being mindful that you're still on the path versus a lot of folks are like, we've already solved the problem. Everybody's broken. Like this is, this is the new solution. There's a humility in which, in the way that you approach it, which I've, I've always had an incredible respect for. And then the second thing is just technologically, you work with people that solve incredibly complex, interesting problems. And that mm -hmm. is a very unique space in which to live because it requires a type of like breadth of knowledge, but yet deep specifics. It's, it's like the ultimate unicorn, like specialized generalist. And I, I would, I'm sort of, I would hope that I can model myself. If I could be half a Noemi on any, any good day, it's a great day for me. Like that's the, 
I, I, I really like this idea of the, the generalists in understanding the adjacencies to the problem. So in the end, that ultimately is what will describe what's next. Like the current go-to-market for any product or company is like X and we have to, you know, we have to sort of push that out into the world. And that's where we fit into the, the quadrants and the waves yeah. and the, the landscapes and whatever you want to describe them as. But it's understanding the, the sort of dotted line to where it's going and being mindful of that in the way you describe the current go-to-market so that you're using words that will mean a lot in six to nine months but sort of planting those seeds now so that that is a a uniqueness in in the way that you've been able to you know put yourself in in and the companies you work with into a, a an important place in in their growth sorry i'm gonna, I'm gonna i could gush over you all day because it's just oh, looking at our at our last discussion it was it was meaningful and, and even in the work that i'm i'm doing now you know just you know now going out on on my own you know and and we're it was like, oh wow! I I kind I rewatched our discussion, and and it really sort of hit home of the importance and how I need to do things in, in thinking about the the sort of GTM Delta problem that 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 we're solving. So it was neat. So thank you. You you've been an advisor without even realizing. I probably owe you something. <laughs> <laughs> no, my my pleasure to talk. Uh, this is it's always been uh, it's always been fun. So let's talk about. What's new? So you're you're doing some very interesting work with an interesting organization, and let's let's talk about the sort of team, the technology, and 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 the problem uh, that you're living in. Yeah. So actually, two companies that I'm working with, but uh, let's start with Gigaio. Yeah. So uh, Gigaio been around for a while, but they play in the composability space and. Um, Surprisingly enough, you know, you, you talk to folks about, you know, do you understand what composability is? You know, what do you think of it? And mm, there's a limited understanding. And there are more questions than understanding, right? So if you say, hey, wouldn't you want to do blah, blah, blah? And they're like, but, but how would you do, you know, and then they have a list of questions of how you would do that. And in their mind, um, it's not something that is um, is doable to some extent. So, but if we think of composability um, as a an efficiency tool, so I like to uh, compare it or to talk about it in terms of um, virtualization because that's something people really truly understand. You know, it's been we can't live without virtualization. But if you go about a decade or two back when VMware first came on the market you had uh, the concept of, you know, you went from mainframe to distributed systems, open systems, and then all of a sudden you had these servers and um, you were utilizing the CPU by 30%. There was like over-provisioning galore for everything. I mean, we talked about over-provisioning in storage, we talked about over-provisioning servers. And so, you know, the hypervisor space and the virtualization space, we came in and said, hey, you know, we know that uh, you have all these resources in a box and uh, you only need X amount of it to run 
whatever the application is, and then you have all this stuff sitting idle. So what if we have this layer that virtualizes all of these? And now you have a pool of CPU, you have a pool of memory, and you have a you know, pool of whatever storage, if it's direct attached or you know, later on networked, <clears throat> but you have these three components. And now we can carve it up, right? And create these virtual machines that reflect the, the specific requirements from you know, how many cores, how many CPUs, how much memory, how much whatever, whatever, whatever you need. And everything that's left over can be allocated to someone else, right? So now we're, we had increased the utilization of those resources from let's say 20, 30% up, 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 up. And as a result, because of the virtualization layer, we added some additional um, capabilities that we may not have had uh, before. So, um, and then uh, the other side, on the storage side, we also had experienced, everybody knows, you know, you have an application or it comes in and says, I need three terabytes. I need three terabytes because I need to, you know, I, I, how much are you going to start with? Oh, my application right now, it's 100 gigs, but I need three terabytes. You need to allocate three terabytes. And of course, as the drives got bigger and uh, generally speaking, you know, small capacities are much harder to provision because of the spinning media, et cetera. So the concept of pin provisioning came in, right? So is it, okay, um, I will designate, you know, three terabytes, but I'll allocate only a hundred gigabytes to your provision. And then, you know, if, if you need to grow, then you, you have it mapped or theoretically, and then you can just consume it as, as you grow. So at the end of, you know, three years, if you only grow to 500 terabytes, I don't have another two and a half terabytes sitting being wasted, right? Uh, and somebody else can use it while you're not using it. So if you think of composability, um, the concept of, of composability really marries these two concepts together. On one hand, it says, hey, um, we, uh, we have these resources um, and we have really poor utilization of them. So how do we increase utilization? And then on the other side, we say, well, you know, I might have one application that needs X, but then everything else needs Y. And while we're doing Y, all of these things are uh, sitting there owned by X. But you know, not available to why. Yeah. <laughs> if that's the best way, to do it, right? So, so we have these two problems, and composability um, really addresses sort of the efficiency challenges uh, challenges that that both um, virtualization and then provisioning um, solve uh, in storage and in the server you know resource allocation. So. It makes it interesting, but it's also obviously challenging in terms of well, how, like, how does it actually look? What are the use cases? So one of the key use cases is uh, what we call sort of the impossible computing machine. Um, and the reason it's impossible is because, again, you get into you know, the server architecture, you know, how much memory got, how many, what's your address space on the PCI network, you know, all these different things. And um, so let's say your application uh, 
needs to crunch through data in, uh, and so it needs 30 uh, GPUs. Now today, in order to get 30 G, you can't get them into a single host, right? Into a single right. chassis. So now you're gonna provision a bunch of them and, uh, and they're gonna be really expensive. You know, you're looking at, um, you've got a couple of GPUs, you could be looking at 60, $80,000 servers. Um, but what, uh, but you don't need all those uh, CPUs. You don't, you just need the GPUs. So, you know, if, what if you had the ability to have maybe one or a fraction of the number of compute nodes, CPU drone nodes, um, and you can compose all 30 GPUs and use them uh, at the same time by the application. And thus, so the first thing is you're reducing your overall infrastructure required, right. and you are providing access to 30 GPUs at the same time. Um, so you can get to your outcome faster. And then on the other side, you can say, okay, well, I'm going to run this and then I'm going to be done. And then all my 30 GPUs are going to be sitting idle. Oh, well, maybe not, right? Because I can then go and say, oh, I need a different configuration to run my application. I only need four of them. So instead of having all 30 be consumed potentially, right? Um, I can allocate just four. So you get the flexibility um, of really using the resources as, uh, as you need to. So this is where we think about like sort of in provisioning conceptually that you use what you need when you need it and then everything else is made available to others to consume. The, um, and it's, it's funny just on, on that, that thing, it's an interesting problem that some also, the reason why this is a, a good arrival of the truth of the use case is that leading up to, you know, especially the last, you know, little while, you know, whether it's weeks, months, or, or even years, potentially, everything that was done in order to try to solve the problem that we didn't even know actually was a real existing problem. Like we wanted to solve the problem conceptually. And some folks have sort of gone into market and, and tried to solve it. I, you know, I've, I've got names on top of my head. I'm just gonna be kind and I'm not gonna pull them out because I, I, I always say, I'm not gonna talk about competitor, potential competitors, but uh, you know, I've seen <clears throat> this idea of sort of like pooling together resources in the, it was like a reverse virtualization that can you actually, you know, combine these things. But what ended up happening was why none of those were really effective other, you know, was both market timing and also the lack of standards that were able to drive a truth in the method. And so partners, the, you need to have a partner ecosystem that's as strong as your proprietary capabilities. And this is where I, I my hypothesis is that the folks that got here up, you know, five years ago, kind of pitching this idea they were doing it alone. And unfortunately, that led to them being the only ones trying to solve the problem and hunting down the hopes of somebody else experiencing the problem, accepting they had the problem and willing to go down a proprietary road in order to solve this problem. And so it's, it's neat that in looking at sort of, you know, what, what the, the gig IO, like first, the concept is fantastic. Secondly, the methods are proven to be needed. And especially HPCs coming along, you've got all these diverse yeah, workloads yeah. that need to be co-located. 
we see, you know, no one's been able to solve the storage QS problem. There's like a lot of stuff that's going on. And then now the fact that you're backing it and building the standards by which the rest of the industry can arrive to this point means that the partner ecosystem, because it's interoperability that is needed in order to support this. Yeah, so this is the challenge, of course, is that you have, uh, you can't just say, oh, I'll, you know, spend my PCI network outside of the chassis and we can just, you know, allocate. There, there's a lot of uh, variables and dependencies associated with the ability to, um, to compose, right? So you have to have the right bio. So you have to have uh, the server vendors on board. Um, you know, you have to consider, uh, again, going back to, you know, the, the number of addresses you have. Um, so that you can enumerate how many devices you can enumerate. Um, And there's a lot of, I think, um, sort of uh, collaboration that can happen. So, you know, going back to uh, our previous discussion about fungible, where they have, you know, a storage array um, that is, you know, NVMe over TCP, um, but the ability to create uh, different volumes with different data services on the same system, and then present them as an NVMe drive um, to the host. So now you think about it. So instead of having multiple NVMe drives, that uh, each one has to be enumerated on this, which limits how many GPUs I can compose, or how many FPGAs I can assign, or how many whatever the device PCI devices today or tomorrow that I decide to include, um, it limits what I can do, right? Right. So, and with some CPUs, it's worse than others. Um, versus, hey, if I can offload that enumeration concept to the fungible GPU that is the core of, you know, of, um, of the system, and it presents a single device, even though there's, you know, maybe hundreds of devices behind it with all the data services I want or don't want, now I have a lot more addressable space for other things, right? So I can have a much more, again, impossible, I don't know if it's the right term, impossible, but impossible within the confines of, of you know, a chassis um, configurations that are better suited for whatever it is that I'm trying to do. The irony is that, isn't this funny that like, so I, I'm, an, I'm an older gentleman, I've been around technology a, a little longer than many folks that are listening to the podcast, that like this, the first thing I think of when I hear these, when we describe these things is like, remember putting in like two ISA cards, and you had a sound card and a, and a network card and a modem. And inevitably, you didn't have a network or you didn't have a sound card. It's like IRQ9, <laughs> IRQ7, IRQ3, like, this literally is it's we've we've talked about abstraction so much that there's this this firm belief that it's magic that happens behind the scenes but the truth is the the addressing still exists and you can only abstract away so much and in doing those abstractions there's a trade-off to uh performance compute like there are there are transactions that have to occur in order to translate addresses and obscure them we saw what the team from NYSERA ultimately did, which became NSX and this idea of solving the TCAM table size problem in distributed physical networks and being able to virtualize that 
and that was like i remember you know although ironically enough there was a security play in there which was actually stronger than the network play because that's really what the what the core thesis was behind nicira it just happens that it was wrapped inside a, a virtual networking play but like when martine was going to the world saying that we can solve this problem there was a lot of people that were like why would i have a problem it's like trust me you're just getting started with vmware you're going to have this problem very soon because you're going to put 1027 devices on that network and you're going to have a real problem because you you're going to introduce both just like hard limits and even just raw computing limits that are going to occur that are being pushed into the hypervisor and the hypervisor is doing this work and then when you actually start to do instrument and understand it like oh boy there's a lot more cpu being spent and then bumping into hard limits like we remember you know being able to get four storage chassis and then like loading in drives and realizing like oh i can't actually use all the drive bays because i've got a two terabyte limit on the lun presentation like oh yeah, like you, yeah, yeah, yeah. so though all those limits we we've hidden them not surpassed them and that's uh a thing that when we look back is that abstraction is hiding the issue, not eliminating it. And hiding it means that something else is calculating and continuously processing, which means lag, impact, performance, you know, risk, failure domains, like that's what, so composable is such a, a beautiful opportunity because now, you know, with stuff like CXL, with like SDXI, with things that are coming in the standards bodies, that are driven, you know, by teams, you know, like what Gigaia yeah. are doing and what Fungible and lots of other folks are doing, then we are creating this, these interoperability standards that then means that we don't have to like proprietarily solve the problem, every problem, because now there's a, a group of people that are, that are going about it. So I'm excited about this because I spend a lot of time, more than probably more humans in technical marketing thinks they should, you know, pouring over papers and, and presentations from folks at SNEA and like seeing kind of where we're going and then now looking at customer environments that are, yeah, especially doing HPC work and, and but right alongside other diverse workloads. And, and that's, that's where it's going, you know, putting in the cloud is like people like, oh yeah, that's the problem. Like, well, no, AWS has this problem. They have to solve yeah. it. Facebook has to solve it. Like all these people have to solve this problem. Absolutely. And the other thing that is interesting, you know, and, and it, it is a challenge is um, oftentimes you want your solution to be the answer for everyone. And it's not, um, you know, one of the things um, about composability obviously is look, um, if you have a need for a couple of GPUs, you're not going to have, you know, you, today composability is not the answer, right? Because we are talking about CXL, we are talking about, you know, memory composability, but it's not here yet. There's a lot of uh, things to overcome. You know, we talk about the, the, you know, the abstraction layer. So if you're adding, I mean, theoretically, you can compose uh, memory today, but if your application is not aware of the tiers or the composability of the memory, um, they're not going to be able to take advantage of it, right? right? So you need the abstraction layer, which I think is part of the CXL2 or CXL3, where you know, you're handling it, that tiering capability, 
within um, within the OS or within the, the, the standards so that the application doesn't have to be aware that you might have two or three tiers of memory um, and that it's going to move and it's going to know what's hot, what's not, you know, it's sort of the way we had, we arrived in the storage segment, right? We used to have, you know, 15K, 10K, 72K, and then, you know, you would somehow physically, manually sort of uh, move it from one to the other. And then you had companies like Compellent come in and, um, and three bar who said, oh, 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 wait, but we can have different types of drives and different, uh, you know, ratios of them in a single sort of LUN and uh, we'll keep the heuristics and we'll move the data from fast to slower to slow. And the application just has no idea that there's different types of media under, uh, under the hood, right? Yeah. And I think that's the same direction we're heading in with, you know, CXL and, and, and memory, um, uh, composability and memory pooling, we're not there yet. Yeah, so. it's, uh, and that's what's interesting to be sort of at the edge of developing the standards and then, and sort of like seeking the use cases. Like we know uh, like theoretically and academically what the use cases are, but then actually bumping into them in the real world is where the, the challenge exists. But you are seeing it, you know, and it's amazing that like to the average you know, tech consumer, they're like, I don't know. It's just like, it is, it is what it is, right? You know, as, as you always tell your kids, you get what you get, so don't get upset. <laughs> like, this is, this is the storage unit I was given. I'll, I'll make the best of it. And I remembered, you know, working with a, a, uh, a large storage vendor uh, who will remain nameless and, uh, you know, bought, you know, the, the sort of, you know, mid enterprise, you know, storage unit. And it was, I mean, it was great. It was like the technology was fine. And we were kind of like, what's the right price we can spend that we can grow into. And like, you had to make all these long-term plans for growth and you were always wrong. Like we were, we were so fundamentally wrong with this on like how fast we would use it. And, and then like, we, we start to load it up. And we're doing like heroic levels of virtualization. We're doing like 25 to one, you know, VM to host ratios. And like, we'd have some odd problems. The backup windows were disturbing. And then in the end, like to the consumer, even with the analytics that were available to me, I couldn't actually figure out where the problem was. And then we engage the, the vendor and they come in and they basically run backside traces across the controller they're not exposed to the consumer and they're like yeah you're this thing's pinned 24 hours a day like your controller is going to light on fire because you've just there's never idle moments and then of course we've got you know vulnerability scans and virus scanning and you know we've got you know file servers that are distributed that are sharing direct LUNs on the same storage as the VMware hosts. And it was like, mm -hmm. so there was stuff that was going on that we would never see through the tools that we have available. And that was an interesting thing. So now, like, especially with Composable, there's so much stuff that needs to be very vendor partner driven to be able to make sure that every, that, that the end outcome is a successful, high performance Composable system that solves actual business problems. I think 
that there are technologies that are still being sort of developed, brought to market in, you know, in, in the coming months and years. They're going to address some of the other challenges um, with composability. You know, so, you know, somebody asked me yesterday, it's like, well, if we had somebody who could, you know, tell us what the dream is, said, I can tell you what to dream about. Um, I, I might not be the person to go and do the research to figure out if it's where, in what layer it has to be solved. But, you know, when I think about composability or the concept of composability, we've been limited to whatever the chassis can hold, whether it's uh, uh, in, in a server environment, you know, in the storage environment, it's, you know, performance and scalability. It's, it's how big can you find, you know, we always talk about how, how big is your file system? How many files can it hold or objects, um, et cetera. So, so these are all, uh, you know, big questions. And I think um, with composability, the dream is that you can have pools of, you know, if you think of a compute machine, which consists of, you know, processors, it consists of memory, it consists of storage, network access to these components. Um, so if I can pool them all into these big vats, and then I can pull them together or compose them into the kind of machine I need and want, and then you know, disaggregate or decompose it, and then reallocate those resources on the fly, oh, that's, that's like, you know, that's the mana because I'm going to get the best uh, rates of utilization. I'm going to be able to uh, provide resources to anyone who potentially needs it. So if we look at, uh, but today the limitation is uh, if you want super dynamic, you got to make sure that um, you, you can't have it sort of very ephemeral. It, it has to be much more defined, you know, right. how many, uh, devices and things um, that, that you want, again, because you have limitations with address spaces, you have limitations with bandwidth, you know, is your application um, going to require a lot of north-south traffic or is it going to be mostly east-west traffic? If it's east-west between the accelerators, um, you know, how do you make sure that you can, you know, you want to have fewer, as few compute nodes, CPU basically define nodes as possible. But if you have a lot of north-south, you're going to be potentially um, you know, pegging your either bandwidth um, or you're going to peg your memory um, you know, to hold all this data. So again, you got to figure this out. And once you do, um, there's not a lot of, it, it, you can definitely change the parameters and how you compose. But it's not as simple. So if you go into an HPC environment, let's say, and somebody says, oh, I have this big giant cluster, it's, more, it's hundreds of nodes, right? And they have some kind of a, uh, a scheduler that is going to allocate the resources that you request. Um, if you need to reboot one of those nodes, that might interfere <laughs> yeah. uh, with the operations of everyone else. So in this case, um, you know, if you're going to compose, you can't have reboots necessarily to you. So, but if you have a predefined environment, much more predefined, so, you know, I have this many compute nodes and these are compute nodes that are going to be running applications that will require some kind of a configuration of accelerators, you know, FPGAs, GPUs, et cetera, then I can define and design it in such a way where I can have that kind of 
fluidity. Um, but it, it is a little bit more defined than it is in our in our dreams or in my dreams in terms of what's theoretically possible. So, you know, so when I talk about it, I like to say, you know, we are on the yellow brick road um, and, <laughs> you know, we're making progress. Um, and with every step, uh, we'll be moving towards um, towards the dream, but it's it's not immediate. So it's a little bit more complex. It's a little bit more requires a little bit more definition. Um, and I believe that there is a break even because again, you know, talk about efficiency, cost, and, and money is you know uh, a break even where it composability, the complexity, and the added cost of the composable infrastructure makes sense. It it pays for itself with the efficiencies gained. So you have to have a decent size or whatever that size is. I don't have the number currently. Uh, and then there's places where composability is just not going to make sense today. Again, right. because we're really composing only, you know, we're composing storage, we're composing GPUs and FPGAs. Maybe in a year or two, when we're able to hopefully compose memory, then that may change. Yeah, and it's it's always the interesting thing of certain, it's not only like initial implementation, but like it's the continuous operation and like the idea of survivability and resiliency within the workload itself and, and, and what it does, you know, and certain things don't necessarily, you know, lend themselves to particular models of scaling, you know, and I like the sort of the, the funniest one people always use, I love the description is you can't take nine women and have a baby, make a baby in one month. Like there's yes. certain stuff that does not scale. There is a pure linear timeline that must play out. And we, we're faced all the time with the right choices. And, you know, and we, we talked about it, you know, before we started about let's say the disaggregated hyper-converged thing. And I, I sort of, it was almost like, it's almost a joke to say it that way. Like when, when I remember when Airbnb and they came up with this concept, they said, what we're going to do, Airbnb is this new model. What we're going to do is we're actually going to buy effectively apartment buildings. And we are going to then sort of create sort of a unified way in which to build each of the suites. And then it'll be presented as an Airbnb. And someone replied back, you just invented the hotel. It's a hotel. Like we, <laughs> like this is, this is not new. <laughs> so we, the phrase disaggregated hyperconverged came out, which, yeah, I I don't I don't actually remember sort of who the origin was, but it was just the concept is right. It's unfortunate that we kind of like we're nerds and we like you know making fun of the words sometimes, but it it met a model that actually existed, but it was like, people weren't really seeing it. We kept saying like, everything's gonna be hyper-converged. Like, no, no, everything's gonna be scale out. And we talk about microservices. Like if you listen to some of the pundits, everything's gonna be microservices deployed on Kubernetes and it's going to run with ephemeral storage and their stateless applications. I walk into enterprises day after day, week after week they're like they have a thousand applications and like 200 of them maximum are in like containerized environments the rest are these just big gnarly weird old client server applications and and result is they're not amenable to just this pure play kubernetes sort of thing you know and it's not but it's not that it's wrong and so we end up with this mix and match this hybridity and so that's when 
you know, say, despite the fact that I even said it tongue in cheek of disaggregated hyperconverged, this is ultimately what composable in my mind does is that it is the idea that you can create a, a unified system across distributed architectures that optimizes the path for workload performance efficiency whatever and it's this incredibly complex like mathematically complex problem to solve because every layer of of disaggregation every layer of abstraction introduces a performance hit no matter how you slice it like this is impossible so like at best you can get as asymptotically close to zero as possible fantastic like that's if you can get near zero latency amen but like inevitably you're going to do this. And so composable as an architecture, arriving with broad access of FP, FPGAs and, and you know the stuff we see around NVMe over TCP and like now it's there. Of course, the supply chains are wrecked and the world's going to heck, but uh, yeah, and we're all gonna be eaten by zombies within the next six months. But hey, you know, if we all survive, I welcome our disaggregated overlords. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Um, so in the old days, uh, and it's still true today, maybe not as much, but it definitely was true. Um, if you had a backup system, <clears throat> we always would say, people would say, it's like, you know, I'm not able to complete my backups or I can't store my backups, whatever. And it was just like, I have a bottleneck. I need to address the bottleneck. And the question is like, well, where would you like to have your bottleneck? Because you solve one bottleneck, you just push it into something else, right? So if the the bottle the bottlenecks always exist, just like vendor lock-in always exists. Yeah. It's the question of where does it exist and is it affecting how you do business or how you architect your systems or not? So if my, you know, if my um um, if I'm limited to, let's say, you know, 10 gigabits per second throughput, but I'm only using one or three, is it a bottleneck? Well, sure, it's a bottleneck. It just doesn't affect me. Um, versus if I have a 10 gigabit connection and I'm trying to push 15, then it is a bottleneck, right? Um, so, it's the same thing with vendor lock. You're always going to get vendor lock and it's just where do you want your vendor lock and where is it going to have impact on you? Where is it, you know, hard to move off of it? You know, easy to move out, costly, not costly. Um, and so I think with composability, it does offer a little bit more of that. I don't want to say future proofing, but it does give you uh, an easier exit out of vendor um, lock in. And it does give you potentially a little bit uh, more flexibility in addressing your bottlenecks as they arise. Yeah, and if the what's becoming the thing that drives the success of the ecosystem is the interoperability, and I, I probably I, I didn't recognize this early enough to really see the the value in this, and like this, you know, being close to a lot of work in SNEA and spending a lot more time in the standards bodies and even the IEEE and understanding this, that by generating the standard before the solution, it allows you to then have interoperability, which means that we collectively will arrive to solve the problem as an outcome together. 
because it sort of forces the hand of like if you've got CPU vendors and memory vendors and server vendors, well, they they all have smart people that could come up with proprietary solutions, and they may even be pretty close, you know, in the end. Uh, it's but you, they'll end up with a tenor sax and alto sax, whatever. Like they'll they'll be like there'll be multiple versions of the same instrument, just different registers in which they operate. And by moving with the like the vision and the long the understanding of the power of the vision to like drive the standard first, and then see that oh okay, so now if I come with a technology base. Like Open Compute tried this. God bless them. They really tried. But the problem was it was so like so glued to the idea of like open being the real thing. It wasn't it just like there's all these proprietary people that are not gonna really dig the open idea. And so open compute is fantastic. And I'm I'm not playing down the value and, and the size of that ecosystem. But if we can get commercial proprietary vendors to use standards to create interoperability then all it, then now you as a you know like what gigio is doing is like all right right just build build the 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 bill of materials as needed that's solution driven it's uh so yeah i'm i'm now i'm older i get it <laughs> it's funny like for all these years i'm like why doesn't just the best vendor come up with the fastest solution like oh no because then they'll be the only one I think the challenge is how do you differentiate? So I think yeah, it really yeah. comes down to um, your differentiation. I think the the idea of uh, you know proprietary is that somehow you can differentiate because you can do something that others can't, right? Um, so uh, or you do it in the way that only you can do, um, and maybe that's the best way, or maybe not. Uh, I think the sort of that gives you the proprietary, uh, you know, that's what proprietary gives you. Um, when you start only looking at standards and everybody's doing standards, then you have to really look internally, kind of like self-reflect uh, as a company and say, okay, where is my differentiation? So, you know, if CXL is gonna give me memory composability, so that's not unique to me, um, because that's part of the standard. How am I going to differentiate my composability from somebody else's composability if we're all using CXL? And that kind of goes along in a lot of those uh, phases. I think it's a lot harder for people to then say, oh, I differentiate this way. Um, and, you know, today, at least Giga.io can say, hey, we differentiate because we're using Redfish um, APIs for management framework. So, you know, standard everybody's using it you can you know implement you don't have to uh use our apis you know there's nothing proprietary it's only us and you can't use it with anyone else so in that regard great um but you know as we add um other kind of capabilities as we expand the composability story you know we really have to start looking at how do we differentiate more in more areas um, right. in, in terms of how people are using it. So whether it's, you know, the easy button and implementation configuration or dynamic app, whatever it is. Yeah, and there's a, above the fold optimizations that can happen that are closer to the workload that are maybe on the other side of the CXL interface. There's lots of places in which you can still do optimization, which is vastly differentiating 
in you know a space that obviously with with what what i'm seeing with stuff i'm doing with magnition you know that's kind of like our sort of like how do you like how do you figure out where the the right pieces are to model out the most ideal optimal configuration because yeah especially when you're getting to you know multi-tier caching and and yeah it's all about memory caching yeah it's and it's amazing, you know, and then, then the CDN problems that exist. So they've got a very unique problem, but they all have the okay. same unique problem. <laughs> so, and then the cloud providers ultimately have these problems that are developing. And then the server vendors are like private cloud is a, it's a thing, it's still a thing. It took us 15 years to get here, but we're, it's actually a thing now. <laughs> it's a bigger thing then. It's a bigger thing. Um, I think there's a lot of, I mean, at least I see, you know, online, a lot of articles and a lot of claims that the repatriation of applications from the cloud onto prem is pretty significant. Yeah. Um, companies are waking up and saying, Hey, you know, cloud is good for what it has always been good for. And let's not use it for what it's not necessarily good for. Yeah. And this is the choice is interesting uh it's it's challenging because you know we've we've had to watch the model of purchase styles like i i still remember the days of like wait a second you want me to lease my servers are you insane we use these things until they basically turn to dust why would i lease it it doesn't make any sense and then five years later no one bought servers anymore and you're like oh okay and then it was the same thing with storage you're like wait you're going to sell me a rack of storage, but there's going to be only 25% of it filled with drives. Like, what's the point there? Like, well, because then as you grow, you know, so then the, the vendors were pre-committing the hardware on their side, yeah, knowing that they could then create a scalable opportunity for, for the customer. And again, like these are models that were broken. People won't go to the cloud. Of course, because like, why would I, I have a long running workload? It doesn't make sense. Well, maybe there's another reason it's there, not just the cost per minute, right? And, you know, it's, uh, yeah, I, there's... there's a lot to it, but by now having the choices and using data to drive the decisions, then this allows this idea of, you know, this private cloud world that can be built on like powerful standards with real incredible optimizations that are capable back in the data center. It's a, it's a, it's a good time. I, I'm, I'm excited about the future of private cloud that's been here the whole time. <laughs> well, the, the funny thing is that, um, so I have a customer and, uh, you know, like many um, in research, they are grant funded for the most part. And, right. um, and, they're trying to reduce the operational budget as much as possible versus the capex opex. So the funny thing is, is that there's so many of them like that um, that vendors who are coming to market and saying, "Oh, we're you know consumption model only, or we're um, you know subscription. It's it's all lease. It's all like you know whatever." They're forgetting that many, many, many organizations, even if they are not 100% grant funded or that kind of uh, organization, that it's easier to get OPEX than CAPEX. 
Right. And you have to have a way to to solve it. So my particular customer said uh, there was a vendor that was pitching their wares. They kind of liked it, but it was only available as an OPEX. And he said, sorry, can't do. Yeah. <laughs> it's a it's an interesting thing. You know, it's uh, I, I like the idea, you know, of of choice, but I know it's it's funny, like having been on both sides of it, both as the customer and in the vendor world, it's it's really, you know, it's a, it's a problem that will exist. And, and quite often that's basically, you, they just choose to fire the customer. Like a lot of vendors are like, we just can't, we can't deal with this. And so they get out. So it's, but there's this ripe, you know, set of, of customers that are in the space. They like, if you just adapted your model, you could probably do this, like call it a subscription, but just like change the way you do the accounting for goodness sakes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, it's a, it's an interesting thing, um, sort of as a quick, uh, sort of, uh, not a transition, but a, a mention. So I've been working with, um, with a cybersecurity company. It's an early stage. They're in the process of building a, a prototype, but what's interesting about it is, you know, uh, it used to be cybersecurity was kind of like a license. You buy a license and then you have support, you know, in the old days, semantic and such, uh, and McAfee. Um, but now it's all kind of uh, consumption-based. It's much more subscription-based, right? It's cloud cybersecurity yeah. type of offerings. And in, in an effort to try to figure out how to, you know, define uh, the business model has been an interesting journey in that regard. Um, you know, do, do we like, you know, how do we, what is the metric by which you license it? Um, do, do I do it by uh, endpoint devices? Do I do it by network ports? Do I do it by, you know, like, how do you figure that out? And then how do you price it so that it's not, uh, so that it's the value, you, you know, you can calculate the return on your investment right. um, from, from the solution. Um, so it's been an interesting um... pricing and packaging legitimately is the hardest thing about like going to market. I've like, because even if you get it right, it's going to be wrong eventually. Like the, I mean, yeah. VMware sort of bumped into this member. It was like, you know, we called it the V tax at one point. They're like, Hey, the amount of memory that's showing up in servers is so disturbingly high that we are like, we are not selling any more vSphere licenses. So we have to figure out how to somehow extract, you know, more continuous revenue when we've got these big, massive, you know, vertically growing servers that are going to get 35 workloads on a single V, you know, so like, well, what if we charge based on memory consumption? And they announced it at VMworld, I forget which year it was. And it was amazing. Like all, of course, all the bloggers were all just like, huh? Like, there's no way this is going to jive, you know? And it'd be called, they called it the VTAX and all this different stuff. And I think about, they created a calculator for it. And I was working in, I, I worked at, you know, for a financial services company at the time. And so the perception was that like, this is punishment. Like, there's no way, like, the, why, I can't believe they did this. It was this real sense of, like, we'd been wronged by this company. And then I ran the calculator. I'm like, oh, wow, this can save us a bunch of money. Like, actually, we're, we're in great shape. 
so in the end, there was going to be this variation of of models. Some people were going to be probably you know punitive you know changes in their in their pricing. Others were going to do really well, and then most people were not going to be changed at all. Uh, but because of the perception of it, VMware had to choose to back out of that that change. And uh, I'll say it happened during this period of time. I cannot say that that was the driver, but from the outside, it appeared that the backlash was resounding enough that it made them rethink the decision, whether it was commercially or right. I mean, and they did, they did well throughout it. Their financials survived and, and, you know, we saw changes in the industry, but it was funny that if you go and you say, okay, we're going to do per endpoints. Well, then it was VMs. You're like, okay, great. What happens when you're running containers? Like, oh, there's like, is it 10 to one average? Is it 15 to one? What if there's a thousand, you know, in like, like, I don't know if I've got a thousand really tiny services that are distributed in this, you know, three node cluster. Like, I'm not going to pay for a thousand endpoint licenses or like edge licenses. So yeah, God bless the people that are doing pricing and packaging. They are doing God, they're doing tough work. <laughs> oh yeah, no, we had that. Uh, if you remember, it was the same transition that the backup environment, the in the yeah. backup space, you know, they used to have a la carte licenses and then they went to capacity licenses. So yeah. for people yeah. who had a lot of application licenses, capacity license saved them a ton of money because you know they could have everything without having to pay a separate license fee. Um, but for people who just wanted like, you know, your basic, you know, file-based backup, all of a sudden they were, you know, paying a lot more. So I remember that those transitions and I remember when, when uh, VMware announced that and then, you know, shortly thereafter they backed out of it. Um, so it, it is a challenge because, um, you know, you, you have to have a story at least of, of um, how you're going to save money or make somebody money. Right. Um, you know, people, unfortunately, we're all in the, we're, we're not in the not-for-profit <laughs> yeah, yeah. industries. And so you have to show somebody what is the benefit. Um, and that's a really, that, that's a, a, I think that's a very big challenge um, because it has to resonate with their own mission, right? Yeah. Um, and obviously it's different for every industry, but um, you know, you still have to kind of connect with them in that yeah, regard. And it's, and it's such an interesting thing too, like on the other side of the, like the, the cost is no object thing. And I bumped into that one time where it's like, you know, I worked in a, in a financial services firm, we had this massive trading floor, you know, and like we'd be sort of struggling to be able to buy one more VMware host. Like, can we fit it into the budget? Like we'd have to, it's like a six month, you know, plan to try and justify an additional host. Like, can we, can we just get it down to like four gigs instead of 16? Like we would do all this, these gymnastics of the bill of materials to try and make it work. And, and in the end, all of a sudden there'd be a knock on the door at the IT area and it'd be like, sorry, uh, hey, what's up? How are you? And they'd be like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm here from, you know, company X. I'm here to run a circuit. Be like, what? Sorry, who are you? And they'd be like, you know, oh, okay. Then you do a quick check and like, I'm, 
the one of the traders had like bought some service that they're going to do and they're going to run a terminal into the the equity desk and you're like oh okay how much is this you're like and and in the end you look like good golly like this is like a three hundred and fifty thousand dollar service like i can't even get a twenty seven thousand dollar server but to that equity trader they're like i'm gonna make that back done like that's it I just paid for it. Like I just, I just submitted one trade that's that covered that bet. And, and so there was this interesting thing that certain money feels free. Um, but, you know, of course, going into the, the state of the financial markets as they are today, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a very interesting and challenging time, you know, on both sides of it, like, you know, but as a vendor, there's incredible opportunities to do very unique things in creating a market right now for the next 18 to 24 months of like, can we figure out how to best use the model and sort of like the, the current financial world, like we get to optimize how we go to market and then coming out of it, it should be a real boon, hopefully. So we just gotta, gotta figure out the next couple of years. Well, I think this is where sort of the idea of the impossible computing machine comes in, right? So I would assume, and you know, I've worked with financial institutions before, but not to the same extent as you have. Um, I'm more stuck in EDU and life sciences, I think, and research space. Um, but you know, as I always, I love this quote. You know, Benjamin Franklin said, "Time is money." Um, Right. I mean, it sounds corny, but in reality, um, every time you do analysis or any time you do anything with data, uh, the sooner you can get to the outcome or the more accurate the outcome um, or the more insightful, meaningful. So uh, I can either take my data set and process it faster. I can take my data set and process it multiple different ways or I can actually uh, utilize multiple data sets that I couldn't do otherwise together, right? I couldn't test that together uh, and do the processing. So I could have a faster outcome, I could have you know, a tested outcome and it might have something that I could never have even thought of doing um, based on limited resources, et cetera. So this is where the impossibility, uh, impossible computing machine comes in where I can say, okay, you know, I can achieve all of these things because these resources may exist, but I have a now a way to, to compose them and to aggregate them in a way that best serves my results. So I am going to get to the outcome faster because I can have, you know, 30 GPUs rather than uh, having to use eight GPUs linearly. Now I can use the, the you know, 30 or 32 in parallel or, um, you know, I can uh, use different types of GPUs for my workflows and, uh, you know, they're readily available. Or, you know, um, because I have the breadth, I can now pull data from multiple sources and do a different kind of analysis than I could before. And uh, the outcomes of all of this have some kind of value revenue. So in financial institutions, I would think that the concept of that impossible computing machine would probably resonate more than, oh, you know, you can dynamically allocate da 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 because 
I mean, maybe, but it's not as big right. as that, hey, I, I have no way to build it today. Like, I can't, there's no way I can do this now. Yeah, and I, I really think this is the, like, the true panacea. Like, virtualization opened the door to it, the idea that you could actually share resources. This was the, this was the first test, right? And, and, it, and it proved itself out. And, but then what we ended up with at some point was more diversity of the workloads themselves and the utilization and consumption patterns. And then that really kind of blows things up. And then multi-tenancy now is the sort of the new, uh, the hill on which we must choose to battle uh, because multi-tenancy and multi-tenant quality of service, uh, it's funny in, in looking at a few different areas, one thing that's very interesting is the idea of the fairness algorithm, right? And, and, and what is defined as, as fair algorithmically versus the truth in, in an action where you will, like symbiotic twins, have one that will come out much larger than the other <laughs> because it was just a little thirstier and got at the, got at the resources better than the second. Mm -hmm. it, it, nature finds a way, whether in computing or in genetics of, you know, it's like the thing they say, if you, if you take 10 people and you each give them, you know, $10 and you put them in a room, someone's going to come out of that room with a hundred dollars <laughs> like that. There is always something that will win out. And I think that's, what's interesting in looking at stuff that I'm, I'm working with on this idea of like a fairness algorithm and whether it's, you know, multi-tier caching, you know, composable, you know, GPU sharing, but yeah, you put it alongside a workload that why can't I create a true composable infrastructure and assign sort of localized tenancy rules around quality of service and availability of resources where you can minimize latency to one particular workload? Because even if, if you do it right at inception, well, you know, life comes at you fast and everybody does this, right? They're like, oh yeah, we got it. We designed the perfect system. In the moment that you turn it on, it's imperfect and growing as more imperfect by the, by the second. It's, it's no different that like when we are born, you know, people say like, when do you begin dying? The moment you're born. Like, it's just that we don't realize it and it takes a long while to accept it and become a little closer to that reality. <laughs> but yeah. a system is only perfect. The, the seconds, the microsecond you turn it on, that's it. It's optimized. Okay, it's broken. Like, it's just how fast, it's like they say with war. No one wins wars, just one side loses more slowly than the other. <laughs> that's right. No, that's very true. It was, um, uh, I don't know, in the HPC space, people know uh, James Cuff. And uh, I heard him once say that, you know, the problem is that just like you just said, you know, the, the moment you deploy a bunch of servers that, you know, you think are just what you need, um, you know, the very next moment, they're not any longer what you need and you need something different. Um, and I think composability is really the answer. Um, we're not 100% there yet. We don't have that fully vetted and delivered that dyna dynamism. Yeah, um, yeah. that we hope to have. Uh, there's still a bunch of um, barriers and challenges that we have to overcome. But I do think that in smaller kind of um, 
spheres, we do have that ability. And for folks who can, who benefit from it and who have like a, a true pain point that it addresses and gives them that lift um, that they could not have. Otherwise, um, I, I think it's a solution that has arrived. It's, to become, you know, so like, you know, that, that curve, the adoption curve where you have very early bleeding edge and then you have early, early, and then you have like, you know, uh, mainstream early, and then you have the laggards and then you get laggards, you know, people yeah. who are still, um, I don't know, uh, maybe using 15K RPM drives. Um, for <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, but my point is, is like, I think we're at the beginning of that curve, you know, where we are, um, you know, somewhere between bleeding edge and early adopters, moving more into, you know, early adopters as the technology more matures and, and becomes more defined. Um, but we're definitely not anywhere near sort of that universal um, kind of deployments that we see across other types of technologies today. No, and, and but it's why I really sort of dig the method, all, the method by which you've come to market and sort of like to think in the sort of the patent world, what makes it a novel solution is that you've, you, you've done it by choosing a, a, creating a semantic way in which to interact with these environments. You know, standards allowed us to do that. Redfish allows you to control and manage these. So that is the, that's the secret sauce is this idea of this sort of semantic, you know, uh, control plane that then removes the because that everybody will try to come up with their sort of proprietary thing and that's where the problem will lie in that that you can see so by creating that what you do with it is now the thing right and you know it's i think that's the halton catch fire thing like this computers aren't the thing they're the thing that gets you to the thing and it would, I, always, I always hate, you know, being happy quoting somebody that doesn't exist because you're actually quoting the person that wrote the story, not the actual actor that has it. <laughs> it's like when people have, you know, stoic quotes and it's somebody from like, you know, uh, from a movie. If, the, if you have a quote and it's Yoda, like it's actually not Yoda that said that, of it's George Lucas. <laughs> or some writer who came yeah, up exactly. with it. Some, some writer there somewhere is like, Seriously, every 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 Silicon Valley office they walk into, what there is no trial. I wrote that. Like, come on, why don't I get? I should get money every time someone reads that. <laughs> exactly. So, have you? Um, were you a fan of the uh, Mandalorian, the show? I'm the worst nerd ever because I've like I haven't even seen all the Star Wars. Like I've, <laughs> I'm, oh. I'm gonna, I've got a. I'm going to get excommunicated from <laughs> technology ecosystems because I, I haven't, no, I've, I actually, I, I caught like a bit of one and it just, uh, it thought, I thought to myself, should I successfully build a startup or should I watch the Mandalorian? I'm like, I'm going to, I'll, I'll get back to the Mandalorian later. <laughs> well, the reason so in the Mandalorian, there's a couple of characters. So the Mandalorians, um, you know, in general, they have the saying is like, this is the way. And you'll hear that quote people use, like, you know, like, blah, 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 blah. This is the way. And, yeah. you know, for us, you know, for the, the Star Wars nerds, it's like, oh, I know exactly where that's coming from, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, there's another character in the first season um, uh, who said, uh, his say was, um, how did it go? Is, um, I have spoken. 
that was the quote. And so, you know, they would be just deciding on something. And then he said, this is, you know, he would say something like, this is how we're going to do it. And then he said, I have spoken. So like conversation over. And the funniest thing was that, you know, with our kids and our friends who are all, you know, who are Star Wars and who were watching the show, it was like a running joke. Everybody for the longest time was like, uh, you know, in, in an argument, you'd be like, I have spoken. And everybody knows where it comes from, it's yeah. a joke. But, you know, to your point, it's, it's like, there was a writer. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> who came up with these phrases that have become or have been adopted into the popular culture. Um, but, but we don't think about that there's an individual behind uh, the creation of those quotes. Uh, we just think of the characters. Yeah, what, and it's funny, like looking at, looking at like technology, it, it really does map and model to that. Like, you know, we, we talk about Jobs and Musk and Sergey and, you know, like we talk about these sort of like heroic characters, but in the end, their, their patents have names on them of people that you'll never meet. And it, it's a, such a very interesting thing that, you know, this, the quotable moments will come from this exalted figure, but it was really their speech writer that, that, or somebody in marketing that came up with it, you know, and, and they kind of ran with it. It's a, it is a funny thing when you, when you look at the totality of it, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a bit of a nerd for like politics and, and human behavior and stuff. So it's, it's yep. funny to see deeper, but in the end, you know, all it is is that, yeah, someone's going to, you know, be arguing in a, you know, with their kids about who, whether you get Oreos or, or chocolate <laughs> cookies. And so they will say, I have spoken. <laughs> like, and that'll be like, everybody will be like, okay, I got it, got it, got it. You know, somewhere back exactly. there, there's somebody that deserves a couple of pennies every time that gets said. <laughs> yeah. So the, so I wanted to uh, just bring up, I don't know how much you do with um, cybersecurity, but, um, but I learned something new about cybersecurity, which is that, um, Fundamentally, you know, we talk about the attackers. Actually, let me rephrase it. The one thing um, that when we talk about cybersecurity, for some reason, nobody ever talks about it as a cost. It's, it's sort of like, it's something that everybody worries about, fair enough. And there's lots of solutions and the market is very, very big. But what nobody really talks about is the fact that it's a cost. Right, like right. you don't need cybersecurity unless you're threatened. Right, you don't need a bolt on your door unless you have fear that somebody's gonna rob you. <laughs> but when we, so we don't really talk about cybersecurity in those terms, and I find that interesting. Um, somehow, uh, for some reason, people think that cybersecurity is related to uh, adding value to the outcomes, but. Unlike all these other technologies you and I have talked about who actually do propel us forward, either um, you know, drive innovation faster or better, more accurate, cybersecurity in itself has a lot of innovation. You know, there's a lot of AI and uh, convolutional neural nets used with network traffic to identify blah, blah, blah. Like there's all sorts of stuff going on, but in it itself, it actually doesn't add any value to any organization. Right. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting thing. That's where we, 
as sort of the, the marketing mind comes in and, and we have to, that's why we kind of latch onto the idea of loss aversion as sort of the selling point, because it's easy to like psychologically attach a value to that. It's, it's an intangible thing, but it's a visceral reaction that gets created. Like all it takes is one breach. You're like, oh, oh. you like, and then they immediately have, they got money in the budget because then they have to like, assign a value to the breach to the risk and so effectively mm -hmm. you're in the risk business i mean obviously that everybody in it technically is in the risk business it, it's just a matter of how how close you are to it like some is you know treated as like wood you know somebody that's out there selling two by fours they probably don't see you know them solving cancer but they're like they've they've ultimately done it because they've created a resource that's going to build a building in which science will occur and and innovation will happen that will eventually solve at a genomic level how to how to beat cancer and like there's some guys like cutting down a tree no idea the connection to it <laughs> so there's this separation of the understanding of risk and value and uh, yeah that's where we we live in this idea that how do you how do you attach the importance and uh uh like an intrinsic value to a thing that can be to take the word as as a cybersecurity would exploited right and exploit is a good in a good way in a, in a true thing of like leverage not take advantage of really just the idea of that how do you yeah that's a it's an interesting problem talking about pricing and packaging that's cool good golly that's one of the tough ones is you know what's the What's the cost? What, like automation was another thing. So I, I know this one way too well, many years. When people would come to me too as a, as a buyer of technology and they'd say like, so how much does your product cost? And they'd say, Eric, how much time do you spend? I'm like, no, 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 don't, 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 don't go down this road. Just, just tell me how much per node this bloody software is. Like I, you're not going to tell me about the full-time equivalent that I'm gonna save because I it's not a real number. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, so we have this with security, like, what's the cost of a breach? You're like, it's zero right now because we haven't been breached. So RIP, your ROI numbers, like what, let, what does it cost per node to run this thing? <laughs> it's a, yeah, that's a, it's a fun, it's an, there's think tanks that are going to be wrapped around this stuff. Well, we have, you know, we have, what are they called? Um, <clears throat> you know, the mathematicians, the actuaries, it's the actuaries. Yeah, the actuaries who do the calculations of of, of what your uh, insurance premium yeah. should be for your car, right? And I would say sort of how you price a cybersecurity solution to a particular end user will depend on an actuary calculating the risk profile of the organization. Yeah. But it's more complex because it's not just the business you're in and you have enough to steal, but also um, how easy it might be to steal from you. Um, you know, so if, what was it they say? Um, if you have, um, let's say like if you have, uh, you know, cameras, then your home insurance might be less because you know, you're less right, likely yeah, to yeah. get robbed or something like that versus, you know, if, if you have, a, if you don't lock your doors, maybe you're at a higher risk and therefore you should pay higher premiums. Uh, it, it almost comes to that, except that like, how do you, 
you know, how do you find that middle ground um, to say, what is the value? Which I think to some extent why personally, I don't like TCO calculators. Right. Yeah, know, it's a technology buyer. <laughs> there are, are a sea of lies, <laughs> basically. Well, yeah. well, I find them that they detract from the discussion of the value of the solution into the minutia of how you build a TCO calculator versus how somebody else views their own costs right. and comes up with their total cost of ownership. And you lose an opportunity to talk the real story. Yeah, well, I, I always think of it as like, because there's a very human aspect to how we have to tell these stories. It's why storytelling is so important. Like, and like, you don't, you don't have a TCO calculator when you meet your potential spouse. You don't like run the numbers. Like, you obviously we do. There's certain things that we kind of like, you talk about, you map out, but it's, there's no like, okay, I need, I need you to fill out the spreadsheet first before we go on our second date i just need to make sure that we're heading in the right direction and like obviously it seems kind of nonsensical on the cybersecurity thing this is an interesting one that it as you said very importantly is like what's the sort of what's the immediate risk to your business and that's like a very simple tangible visceral thing you can attach to but even when that's not the case you can be like well they're not coming after you they're coming after everybody else and they're going to use your systems to do it. And that's kind of the new sort of thing that you run cloud facing systems. They're not after your data. They're after your compute. And like the, the Mirai botnet wasn't because they wanted to get at our cameras. It was because they wanted to get at a bloody nuclear reactor and they were going to use cameras to do it. So the, you are now the the new you know the sort of the source of the virus not the re not the thing the virus will attack it's a it's an interesting sort of whether you know marketing or description of the problem in that you may not be the direct target but you will participate in what is will get attached to it and especially for public companies there's obviously a rather apparent risk in saying that you're, you got, you know, breached in any way at all, even if it wasn't a direct attack against you. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, it's, it's a really interesting space. I mean, from an infrastructure to cybersecurity, it's been quite the, the transition um, because what do they say that an average organization has over 50, uh, security tools, cybersecurity tools uh, that they deploy for a variety of, you know, yeah. things. And yet it still on average takes anywhere from 60 to 180 days to uh, identify and uh, eliminate the, the intrusion, right? So, so you have 50 tools and yet you still exactly. have an intrusion. Right. So, uh, and it still takes you 60 to, you know, two to two months to God knows how many months, um, uh, you know, to contain them. Um, and which time you don't even know if they've done any damage. You don't know what they have stolen or not stolen or um, 
it's it's been kind of an interesting thought process, right? Because even we talk about ransomware, but the ransomware is not in itself is not the big um, threat per se. That's a small threat. The bigger threat is that they're going to steal shit from you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and it's the the interesting thing is the patience with which these attackers work. Like we kind of think sometimes that we will catch it in real time, but the truth is most of it is sitting at rest inside our network and it's waiting to be activated, right? That's how Sandworm, you know, ultimately played out as it was planted a for months before yeah. it was activated. And, and then, you know, just like a virus in effect can live in the body. And then when something comes along, it actually activates that. Uh, I mean, that's ultimately what, every and it, they're natural cells this was funny and there's a cellular reaction which you know causes cancer and causes all these things like that's that plays out in the network of like there's this thing lying in wait and then it just it needs a catalyst and that catalyst only turns it on and then so the security problem you know we're trying to solve the real-time inbound like monitoring traffic on the wire but meanwhile you're like too late, <laughs> you know, you need immutable infrastructure, immutable backups, immutable run books in which you can generate your, your workloads, you know, so like immutable, composable, they sound like buzzwords, but it's where we gotta be, yeah, so. Uh, so do you think composability has a security play? I think everything has a security play. It's just a matter <laughs> of how, how, front and center it is. I always, so this is my product marketer coming in, right? You have to think of the most compelling thing to anybody is loss aversion, right? Kahneman and Tversky taught us that one, right? Like we saw this, how, yep. how it plays out. And so to make it better, like I've dealt in automation and performance uh, optimization for years. And to make, to attach a value to performance increase requires like an 80% increase in performance to justify the cost, but to reduce a 10% loss in performance will attach the same value. Right, right, yep. So security effectively falls into the same thing of like, and it, it I say, I make fun of it because it boils down to the same thing of what's the cost, like that silly intangible thing of like, what's the cost of a breach? And in composability, it's this idea that you know, there, first of all, the systems require changes in access, like you're going to add more systems that ultimately will require more software overhead. You know, NFV opened the door to, we're going to do detection, threat detection in line, but in line is now inter service. So it's happening at the service mesh, which is why everybody's struggling to figure out MTLS at the service mesh, which is an incredibly complex problem to solve because not because it's a technologically difficult problem to solve, it's a resource intensive problem to solve. And so if you design for X size of workload, and then suddenly you add threat detection, you add a machine learning model, you add a GPU intensive, you add a compute intensive, you add a memory intensive, you now suddenly have this generic all purpose infrastructure architecture with all these purpose-built workloads living inside them and then we are going to have to 
disaggregate the functions, but you can't. It's everywhere. It is literally in the tendons of, the, of this system. So this is why service mesh is this interesting area because service mesh is seemingly a network problem. And it is to a degree, obviously it's like L4 to L7, kind of like, how do we do mm -hmm. very dynamic mapping of, of resources? But even where it's not super dynamic, it's the idea that you can, you know, service, you know, create a service-based network that's adaptive. But then what's going to happen there is that now you have to think about traffic management and ultimately then what happens, right? What's, what's sort of the psyllium isovalent play? It's a networking problem that has a security story. Because then you can use that instrumentation layer, that control plane and that understanding of the actual path. So you're thinking about end-to-end -end optimization, but oh, wait a second. I know exactly what applications are talking to what other applications on what ports. And so if there's mm -hmm. any change in that pattern, I can recognize it. Oh, mm -hmm. now I have a security product on my hands. So it's a composability in a way as we create this sort of broad scalable infrastructure, it will in itself have to somehow expose instrumentation that will service a security purpose. So it's, it itself is not the security mm -hmm. solution, but it will empower. It's like, and I'll, say, I'll call an isovalent again, it's like what makes cilium very interesting in, in how it does it. It itself is not interesting. The way in which it gathers the metrics is it's eBPF, mm -hmm. right? So like in this weird way, so CXL is, has born, you know, composability and Redfish gives you this control plane layer. So now you can leverage this ecosystem and access these analytics and ultimately tap into the stuff that's going along inside it. And now sort of at a cellular layer, you can do things with that because you now present a common semantic way in which you can interact with this infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And so if you can then present a layer in which a security service could speak to that layer, you are now the standard by which products can be made in the way that eBPF ultimately did this for, for the, the Linux subsystem. It's a, I, I mean, this is getting to like some weird walking around the woods kind of like think tank stuff, but like that, that is the way that I look at it at the largest level, uh, because it creates a common, as all, I got a, I got a huge thanks to Shmuel Klieger for this one, right? He always talked about the, the artifacts will change. What you have to do is create a common semantic layer in which you can instrument and control whatever it is you change out the artifacts that the system itself is the way in which you gather instrumentation make decisions on that data mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. then take action whether it's a real time whether it's an you know operational window whether it's an occasional thing or a continuous mm -hmm. thing whatever it is that is the thing that enables the thing it's the interoperability, right? That's the um, making sure that everybody is talking to each other and has a common language in which to speak. So um, going back to Gigaio, you know, 
the the bright cluster manager 9.2 now supports you know is integrated with um, GigaIO so you can compose you you know the the infrastructure so we can use bright cluster manager to compose systems uh, with GigaIO um, and if you think of you know, other schedulers in the HPC environment like Slurm, right? So if we have a plugin, if we have a plugin to vCenter, so all of these frameworks that have been already established and are sort of standards and have their APIs, if you can plug into them and leverage them to do the things that you, you know, somebody would do that they're already doing, but doing it in a different, right. more efficient or whatever, you know, more um, dynamic way, then it's, it's, it's almost like an easy button or it's, um, uh, you know, it's a, it's an easy slide, you know, you've greased the path um, yeah. forward um, so that it makes it easy. Cause I think that there is an undervalue of easy, like ease of use um, in the marketplace. You can have the most complex technology that has the best outcome, but if it's going to take, you know, you know, it used to be GPFS and Luster. Like you, get, you needed a bunch of yeah. PhDs in order to set it up. I think <laughs> some people, uh, you know, so it's it's sort of the same thing. Is you you can't require too many people. You can't have uh, you know a week full of training in order for you to be able to configure it. Like it has to be more intuitive. It has to be easier um, to interface with. Um, yeah, and I mean, and so taking, you know, continuing our chat, because I, I love this, I love this thought process of, like, go back. So let's, let's wind the clock back. And I'll do this. I know we've actually gone extremely long. And thank you for sharing all this time and, and great conversation. Uh, but the, I think to the thing that jumped into my mind right away, and I thought of like eBPF, like go back even further to, you know, pre VMware, even pre Windows was, I uh, was a Novell kid, right? So, and it was NLMs, right? Loadable modules. And in fact, like that's what eBPF programs are that they don't have to be in the kernel. They run beside the kernel and have direct access to the kernel. That's why eBPF is such a fantastic enabler mm -hmm. for other things that you can do low overhead access to stuff that's generally not accessible between the user space and 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 the and, and the root uh so this is a, an interesting thing and, and so if i look at composable as that same methodology that you remove sort of that fixedness of if that's a word uh <laughs> word marketing we can invent words it's this <laughs> fixed nature of infrastructure. And yeah, like what if you have HPC that has incredibly long running things, like you can't change it. We basically like turn on drug trials as a fantastic example, and they run this data. If they miss eight minutes of data, they have to do it again for five weeks. Mm -hmm. You cannot have gaps in the data. It's mm -hmm. It will invalidate weeks of work, right? You think about what we're doing yeah. with all these computations that are occurring, you know, and so like it's effectively taking this grid computing concept, but now using true purpose-built additions, loadable modules of purpose-built GPU, DPU, whatever it is just fired in there. And then you can attach it to a live running resource in the same way you did with a loadable module or an EBP program. You're at the hardware layer, we can now do something that we have been trying for a decade to solve at the software layer. 
but you had to build hardware to try and do this. So you just moved the bottleneck. And so now the mm -hmm. bottleneck is at the hardware layer. What if we could eliminate the bottleneck and actually have dynamic, you know, the ability to dynamically change the hardware capabilities because we've got these semantic control layers and this unified method by which we can, we can, you know, run our infrastructure. And then you can, in that large pool, you can truly take best of breed capabilities of each subset. And then as the workloads change, you've got some that are long running, some that are ephemeral, you, you really, you have this ability. It seems like a panacea, but we've been trying for decades to do it in software and only then to hit the wall and say, great, now I've got this fantastic loadable software that I have to architect my hardware for once and hope I got it right. And, you know, bad yes. news, you didn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, Spoiler absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I think, yeah, there's a, there's a, you know, as I'm digging deeper and deeper into the understanding of all the interdependencies and things and composability, um, it, you know, it, it is, there, there's, it goes all the way from the chipset and what the instruction set and what it's optimized for and um, down to, you know, it goes really deep. And then the software that you build to utilize that chip and what that can do. And what are the hardware accelerators that can achieve much more performance than you can do with software, right? So, right. so like we've had, you know, CPUs and we, you know, added tons and tons of cores. But if your application is not built to take advantage of all those cores, then <laughs> yep. uh, you're not going to get an uptick, right? So if we have, you know, the, we added the GPUs because they are optimized for sort of a matrix type calculation. We're adding DPUs because they're optimized for, you know, a different kind of calculation. We have the CPUs, which is more general purpose. And so if we have a work, you know, if we have an application, you no longer have to necessarily think of, as you said, start from the hardware. It's like, well, what's possible, right? Well, it's possible that I can have a server with this many, you know, the CPU and these, this kind of, you know, maybe a GPU or something like that. And so I have to build and design my software to take advantage of the hardware that is possible. Now I'm going to turn the table upside down and say, well, why don't you say, what is the optimal state to, to run your application, to run the job, to get the outcome that you're really seeking? And then now I can go and say, okay, well, you need da 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 da, -da. I can compose it and give you the right system to run that application in an optimal state. Yeah, well, and like, oh, God, I could do this all day. Like the idea of like, then from there, you're effectively enabling at some point, continuous real-time optimization. And with because you've got composable underlay, there is there there is the actual potential that as as the workload adjusts that you could add and remove physical resources to it, provided the like the abstractions are in place that it doesn't present that yeah. as a change to the workload, and you know, and because you've got systems that can present that the data you've got the the instrumentation layer at the composable hardware layer you know exactly how the hardware is being consumed 
at a layer that's lower than the operating system or the hypervisor can ever understand. So you can actually see stuff and then translate it close all the way up to the workload in effect where you can say that like this, you know, we've done all this work and we've thrown all these GPUs at this thing and, and it's using none of them. Like, <laughs> or it's like, remember the old joke of like, you know, everybody was telling me I need eight CPUs. I'm like, I would show them the gr performance graph and you see one spike and seven flat lines. And like, no, you don't need eight CPUs. <laughs> you don't even have an application that knows how to use the second CPU. This is right. not, it's not automatic, right? It's, you know, right. money doesn't solve money problems. <laughs> well, that's, I think that's, that's the yellow brick road sort of thing, you know, where we're laying one brick at a time. Um, and, uh, you know, as we started the conversation, I think that uh, composability and GigIO is solving a couple of very specific problems, but they are still capped, you know, in terms of uh, when you decision make, how big, you know, you can do, how dynamic, et cetera. Um, but, you know, as we're laying bricks with the standards and adding more functionality, those abstraction layers, semantics, I think the path that we're trying to build is to that panacea that you're describing, where you know you can adjust the hardware and the infrastructure to reflect the application needs, you know, almost in real time or in real time. To when that can happen, I, it's not in the next 18 months for sure. It's not even probably in the next five years. It's probably beyond that. But you know, we're we're marching towards that. And if if everybody understands or everybody believes that that is the desired end state, then um, you know, if we were work together and and collaborate on these standards, then we can eventually probably reach there. Yeah, and and I'll. It goes back to the core of like like the core vision of the company is built on the thesis that this is this is the ideal situation and in the way that you go to market is a subset of that global that that broader vision and, and that's why but it's fun when you actually play this out to sort of its logical conclusion that you can see this path and and in the end we could take it further and further and further and further but in the end every single layer that you get to you just simply say this is only made possible because of the very core thing that we do from the outset, right? So today we delivered this, and this is the use case that we can deliver today in market. Fantastic! I'm like, all right, cool, right? I can sell this thing, but the you know the 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 framework is there. I, I mean, I used to do this with vendors, and I would ask them, because I felt like terrible when I ask sometimes because I'm like, I'm not trying to test you, but they would say like, I've got the software. I'm like, do you have a, a you know a, a customer facing fully restful API? you know, that, that I can effectively just send any kind of CRUD command to. And they'd be like, you know, they would say yes automatically or like, no, we've got some, you know, we've, we can, we've got an SDK and you can deliver. I'm like, it wasn't because I wanted to build something that would use the API. It's because if they've gone to, if they've written an API for it, it means they're already like thinking ahead of what software will consume this software or hardware. And that mm -hmm. to me was like, it was about readiness, not about what's like, I'm not going to use the API, but other software I buy will. And that was the important thing for, for me was that you as a vendor had seen the future and are building towards it. And that in my mind is like, and then of course that became the storyteller in me was always like, 
you know, let's let's connect what we're doing now to what the longer term goal is. So it's uh, I've learned it from you. There you go, Naomi. You you taught me well. Like I said, I I I have a I have a PhD in in Graysdorfology. <laughs> I hope so. I uh, it's 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 always great to be able to chat and. And I know we gotta we gotta wind up on the podcast. And I know with funny things we'll probably keep talking after the mics go off too, because we got lots of other things to talk about. But for folks that want to reach out to you, Naomi, what's the best way that they can do that? Uh, well, they can uh, reach me at ngraysdorf at uh, for gigaio. It's at gigaio.com. Um, if it's not gigaio related, you can just reach out to me at ngraysdorf at gmail. And uh, yeah, that's the amazing thing is that great people, you know, we will, we will sort of transcend the companies we work for uh, in, in great ways. And definitely anywhere that, you know, I go where you have been is only positive things that come from, from that. It, it's, it's fantastic to, to learn, you know, and, and share these ideas. It's uh, I look forward to many, many more chances like this and, you know, yeah, it's always a pleasure talking again. to you, Eric. Love yeah. it. Excellent. There you go, folks. That's the podcast. We're going to wind down and I'm going to keep talking. <laughs>